Good morning. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. A few housekeeping things. In order to receive credit today for attending, you should ping this small s, small y, small t, too. It's up there on the board. But just to remind you to send a text message to the CME site, and you will get your credit for today. The other thing is we had a demonstration kitchen this morning, which we do monthly for Cook, Eat, Learn. Part of that was also a quiz, and many of you entered that. And the question was, list two types of heart-healthy fats and two types of fats to consume in moderation and variety. Picked at random, out of a hat, was this one saying the response of good fats, olive oil and avocado oils, and ones to watch and keep in moderation, although there's controversy about it, would be saturated fat and butter. But this was a good answer, and that is Hillary Spencer. So Hillary, come up and get today's gift. And that's a bottle of extra virgin olive oil and, and this phenomenal cookbook on olive oil and vinegar. A lover's cookbook. So there you go. Well done. All right. Well done. <clears throat> okay. Without further ado, I want to welcome you to this, which is actually a special Grand Rounds, because this one is also the Lou Matthews Visiting Professorship. We do this yearly. We have several named lectureships, and we are delighted for today's speaker. But let me first tell you about Lou Matthews. This professorship was established in 1990. Lou was a skilled and beloved physician here at DHMC for over 30 years. He was a general internist. He had a special interest in nephrology and hypertension and vascular disease. And he spent all of his time here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock for his professional life, part of which he served as our medical director. And he continued to practice through his career here. He was the quintessential generalist physician, deeply respectful and supportive of his patients, and valued highly for his wit and wisdom of his, for, from his colleagues. As a physician and as a medical center leader, his integrity was beyond reproach as he invested himself in the problems of those for whom he bore responsibility. In his honor, the Matthews Professorship provides support for inviting to our campus a distinguished leader, scholar and teacher in medicine who embodies the qualities of mind and heart for which Dr. Matthews is remembered. So let me tell you about and give you an introduction to today's speaker, Dr. Kirsten Bibbins Domingo. She is the Lee Goldman MD Endowed Chair in Medicine and Professor of Medicine and of Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the University of California, San Francisco. She's the director of the UCSF Center for Vulnerable Populations at the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, a research center focused on discovery, innovation, policy, and advocacy, and community engagement for populations at risk for poor health in inadequate health care. Dr. Benz Domingo received her undergraduate degree from Princeton. And then she got her medical degree, PhD in biochemistry, and master's in epidemiology and biostatistics from UCSF. She also completed her internship, residency, and fellowship in med internal medicine at that institution. She's a practicing general internist at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, and she's a recognized expert in evidence-based prevention in both clinical and public health settings. As many of you know, she is the chair of the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force and has been a member of that for over five years. Very deservedly, she is an inducted member of the American Society for Clinical Investigation and most especially the National Academy of Medicine. We are so delighted to have Kirsten with us today. Please welcome her to the podium. Thank you very much. I very much appreciate the invitation to be with you today. I, um, I enjoyed learning about Dr. Matthews, for whom this lectureship is named, and I hope you'll hear some of the themes um, uh, um, related to his interest in this talk. Um, and um, I loved learning about your, uh, your um, 
the what, what are we eating this morning? The 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 uh, oatmeal we're having this morning, and I think you'll hear some of those themes as well. So um, I I. Uh, my research is mostly focused on health disparities, and we're going to discuss health disparities very broadly. They look different around the country, but many of the themes are the same. And what we're going to talk about today is sort of at that intersection of clinical medicine and public health. And uh, I hope to convince you that we need to be moving more at that intersection to try to achieve the health goals that we all have. So this is where I work. This is Zuckerberg San Francisco General. You see the old buildings because this is an old county hospital and then the very new building that, uh, that uh, just opened in the last uh, several months and uh, got the new name from the, um, you know, the developer of Facebook. Um, so we're now Zuckerberg San Francisco General. So I got interested um, in the topic I'm going to talk about when I was an intern. And uh, I was working in the emergency room, and um, Mr. F came into the emergency room, and he had been suffering for chest, from chest pain. Um, he didn't listen to his wife, who had told him to come in right away when the chest pain started. And so by the time he came in to see us, he was already 36 hours into his myocardial infarction. We took him up to the cath lab. Um, he had three vessel disease. We didn't do any interventions there. We took him to the ICU, and I started taking care of him there. Um, there I learned many things about uh, Mr. F. He, <coughs> he uh, was uh, a UPS worker, um, and he was originally from the south, from Alabama. He had moved to San Francisco for opportunity, as many people had. He and his wife had this wonderful plan to move back down to Alabama in the next nine years. Their kids were grown, um, and he was going to uh, work, he and his wife work, and then together move down there and, uh, and continue to live out the rest of their life there. I took care of him in the ICU, and he did well. We discharged him to um, the clinic at uh, San Francisco General, and I took care of him in the outpatient setting, and I got to learn about him a little bit more. Unfortunately, because he had a completed heart attack, he was left with heart failure. And um, his life changed quite dramatically, and he was not able to go back to work. Um, and he, we spent several months working to transition him to now disability insurance, right? Um, he went from working and planning for his retirement and doing the things that, um, uh, that he was very passionate about, he and his wife, uh, to all of a sudden um, not being able to work, having to go on disability insurance, moving from no medications to up to 10 medications for his heart failure, for the coronary disease, for the diabetes we eventually diagnosed, and then for the depression that happened as a result of the, this big change in his life. His wife was always with him, uh, but eventually became too difficult for her to take care of him, and we had to admit him to um, the skill the, to the uh, nursing hospital that's affiliated with our, our public system here. And after about a year in the nursing facility, I learned that um, Mr. F had died. So this, uh, this story made quite an impression on me because Mr. F was 40 when this happened. And for me, of course, um, as a physician, we all appreciate that poor health can be devastating whenever it happens in our patients. But when it happens in that younger period of time when we don't expect it to happen, um, the, the effect is really quite magnified. So the effect on this person who was doing the things we expect 40-year-olds to do, to be working, to be doing the plans that they have for their family, to be responsible for their children as well as for the generation above them, that the impact of poor health earlier in life is uh, quite dramatic for the individual, for their family, and then for communities who might be disproportionately affected by um, these patterns of disease earlier in life. So the first thing that I worked on when I joined the faculty was I really wanted to understand this. Everything I saw in the literature said heart failure is a disease of older people. It's the most common reason Medicare recipients are admitted to the hospital. Um, and, but what I was seeing with Mr. F was heart failure in this younger person. So um, I eventually uh, started working with uh, this NHLBI-funded cohort study called uh, the Coronary Artery Risk Development in Young Adults. This is a study of 5,000 young adults that's designed to answer the question, um, how does heart disease develop in young adults? 
This cohort is half black and half white, and I will say Mr. F is African American. Um, he, it is half men, half women, and it is half low socioeconomic status and half high. And so it's designed to try to understand all of those things that really influence how uh, cardiovascular disease develops at younger ages. And so it turns out that although I couldn't find much about heart failure in the literature, um, other practitioners who take care of um, African-American patients, who take care of patients in more impoverished communities, knew this phenomenon of um, heart failure happening early. And it turns out in this particular study, one can see exactly um, what I saw. So if you look over time in cardia, remember that this is a fairly large cohort. It's balanced by race, sex, and socioeconomic status. These are each um, heart failure events that happen over time. And what you see is that the heart failure occurs in African-American men and women. That's the orange and blue lines. And it doesn't occur in whites at all, right? There's one event in one white woman who has atrial fibrillation. Um, but all of the events occur there. And it turns out over time, this is cardiac participants are 18. They're in their 20s when they're enrolled. They're between 18 and 30. This is following over 20 years. It turns out that in this cohort that's designed to study cardiovascular disease, it is heart failure that's the most common cardiovascular disease, not coronary disease. Um, and so uh, it, it, is, it is a, uh, a phenomenon that one can see. This is a rate of heart failure of uh, one in 100 black men and black women who develop heart failure before age 50. This is a rate of developing heart failure that is what is observed in Framingham 20 years later. So it's really shifting the heart failure um, incidence uh, about 20 years earlier. Although um, this is clearly a phenomenon in African Americans, if you look at those who are um, of lower socioeconomic status, you see that it happens proportionately more in lower socioeconomic status. And it's a really striking feature of cardia that um, socioeconomic status at the very beginning is one of the strongest predictors of all of the types of cardiovascular disease that develops in this cohort in both blacks and whites. We are fortunate in Cardia to be able to look at the measurements at the very beginning and at each of the exam visits that happen over time. And if you look at that and you say, what are the antecedents of heart failure? What predicts who is going to develop heart failure? It is high blood pressure early in life. It is obesity early and the development of diabetes over time that seem to be the, the predominant predictors. I want to know as a physician clinically, if this is a younger person who had come into my clinic, was this somebody who I would have treated for uh, these things that seem to be the antecedents of heart failure, if I had wanted to prevent this from happening in Mr. F. And this is uh, among blacks, um, those who actually met the threshold for clinical hypertension. And then you see among those who developed heart failure that by uh, the year 10 exam, so they're now in their 30s, 75% of those who go on to develop heart failure meet the threshold for a hypertension diagnosis. And even at the year zero exam, when they're in their 20s, 20% 20 do. So this is, um, this, is, this is hypertension. This isn't some mildly elevated blood pressure. This is frank hypertension. And if they had come in to see me in the clinic, this is at least at a threshold at which we would have considered treating. Turns out nobody in cardia who, is, who has blood pressure elevations, black or white, get treated because we're not that great at treating um, uh, younger people who have, um, who have these types of cardiovascular risk factors. And I'm going to talk about that a little bit more. So let's talk a little bit about what it means to, to the health of young adults. This is sometimes a little bit of a blind spot for us in medicine. Um, as internists, we focus a lot on uh, the diseases that happen as one ages. Um, the pediatricians oftentimes you know, are disproportionately focused on the, the youngest ages in the pediatric period. And so even there, the adolescent medicine is, is a, oftentimes has to be a particular focus for pediatricians. And so there has been, for many, have considered uh, young adult, the young adult period is sort of a, a blind spot, generally speaking, as we talk about health. This is an Institute of Medicine report um, that came out in 2014, really focused on this period. They um, suggested that the world has changed in many ways that 
creates greater demands on young adults because of economic restructuring, advances in information and communication technologies, changes in the labor market. This has radically altered the landscape and opportunity in young adulthood. Young adults today follow less predictable paths than in previous generations. Pathways are more diverse in timing and in sequencing, leaving home, completing school, entering the workforce, forming a romantic partnership, becoming a parent. Those might happen in different orders in this generation. Inequities um, that we know exists around the country can be magnified in the young adult period. And 17% of those 16 to 24 are neither in school nor working. Uh, in Cardia, the study that I was talking about, the way they define socioeconomic status is people who are in their 20s who've not um, graduated from high school. And that itself is a predictor for many of the types of cardiovascular events that happen in Cardia in both blacks and whites. And the earning gap between those with a bachelor's and those with only a high school diploma has roughly uh, doubled since 1980. And then I think for us as internists, we don't focus as much on younger adults because, um, because most of the conditions we, are, we treat um, occur more in older people. And I think the, the, um, the flip side of that is that we assume that young adults therefore are healthy. And unfortunately, young adults are surprisingly unhealthy. Uh, so 37% of young adults in the US are obese. Young adults are more likely to be injured or die in motor vehicle crashes than adolescents or 26 to 34 year olds. So this, they're focused really here on this youngest age uh, of the young adult period. And that one fifth of young adults age 18 to 25 have a mental illness in the past year and two thirds have not uh, received treatment. So I'm focused on uh, cardiometabolic conditions. Again, those ones that we think about happening more in advanced age, because that's when the prevalence is highest. But globally, not just here in the US, 25% of chronic disease deaths occur in those under 60. Um, that's around the world. And 90% of these premature deaths occur in low and middle income countries. So this is a, a condition we're talking about in the US, a high income country, but globally, the burden of chronic disease, the burden of chronic disease at younger ages, um, and then the burden in low resource settings um, is, is a global burden. In the US, this premature burden of chronic disease disproportionately affects racial and ethnic minority populations and poor populations. These are the causes of premature mortality in San Francisco. So um, premature mortality is defined in the statistical way that looks at sort of the average life expectancy um, that we would expect for people who live in San Francisco, and then those things that rob one prematurely of life uh, before that you reach that sort of average. Um, while we oftentimes think of injuries, um, uh, drugs and alcohol, um, self-inflicted injuries as being um, uh, occurring with greater frequency in this age period, the important thing I'd like to highlight here is that the first five causes of premature mortality in uh, the San Francisco population generally are chronic conditions. Um, HIV would be the exception, although many would say HIV has now become a chronic condition, but it's ischemic uh, heart disease, lung, bronchus and tracheal cancers, cerebrovascular disease, and hypertensive heart disease. The way this is organized here is that you can see depending on which race ethnic group you're interested in, the number of years of life, that's the, on the bottom axis, that one loses prematurely and the groups that lose the most number of years of life. And so you see African-Americans, that's the circle there. They are disproportionately affected by um, deaths at younger ages, but all the groups are. And if you look on the top at ischemic heart disease, every single one of the groups is losing um, deaths before, uh, before their time uh, because of uh, ischemic heart disease. And that tracks um, most specifically with, um, with uh, poverty. What does it mean when a younger person and younger people in general 
um, uh, have chronic illness. Uh, if you are not compelled by the importance of the health considerations themselves, some people find it more compelling to look at the dollars that are associated with poor health earlier in life. This is just looking at the cost of um, obesity as it translates into metabolic syndromes when it occurs in the 20s and 30s. And um, while this results in um, a large degree of direct health care costs in blue, so things that, um, you know, because uh, it costs for patients to be treated either in the outpatient setting or when they come into the inpatient setting with conditions. Um, the true economic burden in the U.S. is from lost wages due to disability and, and wages lost due to premature death. And that amount, uh, that economic burden far exceeds the health care burden of having chronic conditions in this uh, 20 to 30 year old age period. So when poor health begins earlier in life, what do we need to do about this? It means prevention must begin earlier. And I think that was the biggest, that's how I started thinking about Mr. F and what I should have been doing. It means that if I had wanted to prevent that from happening when he was 40, I had to be thinking in the 20s and uh, because I'm an internist. And uh, I started thinking about what, what I wanted to do earlier in the 20s. And of course, that pushed me back into um, you know, earlier and earlier in life, my pediatric colleagues, you know, laugh at me because I sort of discovered pediatrics by working backwards from, you know, Mr. F, who was 40. Um, I got into interested in intergenerational things, and people sort of laugh at that. But, you know, I, I think that, um, that for many of us, that is, um, that is uh, the, the way, because we, we understand uh, sort of the patterns of disease that are happening in adulthood, and watching this shift means we have to be thinking in this life course perspective, even though our usual medical silos force us to think in terms of, you know, adults and children. So clinical awareness uh, must shift to this younger age group. Again, as clinicians, we, I think, think of younger adults as mostly healthy. Um, and so, um, you know, my colleagues, when they look at a, a younger person with high blood pressure, often say, well, you know, that's you know, nothing's going to happen for 20, 30, 40 years. So maybe that's not the most urgent thing to address. And in many ways, that's right. But Mr. F, I think, and others remind you that, um, that the, the consequence of longstanding hypertension, when longstanding hypertension begins in your 20s, the, the end result of that happens in, in the 40s. So, and then I think to understand poor health, we also have to understand sort of the biological factors that contribute to earlier and more severe presentations. And I will tell you, although we've done a lot of work on understanding heart failure, us and other groups, uh, and why they happen disproportionately in African Americans, it's not as easy as just uh, hypertension and diabetes, but it is also not as easy as just uh, um, some genetic predisposition. There's some complicated interplay um, between, uh, between some biological predisposition, between uh, hypertension that happens earlier, and, um, and I think that uh, under, understanding that complex interplay is, um, uh, it, it still needs uh, much more study. So the challenges when risk for poor health begins earlier in life, as we're trying to think of prevention, is that communication about health and risk is more challenging in this group. We learned a lot from people who have done HIV, AIDS, and, uh, and risk communication that this is a group that's harder to communicate about risk with. The term, the young invincibles, that nothing is going to happen to me, uh, describes this in, in many types of preventive efforts. And it's particularly true when you're thinking about something that's, you know, symptomatic like hypertension and the consequences of it are, are still many years down the road. This means uh, if you're trying to think about prevention that you need to think about this in health uh, in venues other than the doctor's office because this is not usually where young adults are coming in. The exception here is people who are coming in for OBGYN care, women who are coming in for OBGYN care, but, um, but we have to think a, a little bit more uh, creatively and outside the box of where we're going to be doing these preventive efforts. And then it's worth acknowledging that, uh, and the, much of this was done before, the Affordable Care Act, but certainly there are lower rates of health insurance and lower provision of preventive services in this group. That's the additional challenge.
This looks at um, when uh, ambulatory visits occur by age, and you can see these are highest in uh, the youngest uh, child age category, zero to nine years, and the nadir here is the 20 to 29. And so um, the, the provision of ambulatory utilization and uh, use of preventive services in the healthcare setting is clearly the lowest in that early uh, 20s for a variety of reasons. So one thing that I've been very interested in when one thinks about now racial and ethnic disparities is that um, regardless of race ethnicity, adolescents and young adults in general have a lower perceived risk, lower receipt of ambulatory and preventive services, lower rates of health insurance, and then you combine that with minority populations where you have uh, younger age at disease onset, higher burden of chronic disease risk, and lower rates of health insurance, and that this category um, this, this blind spot in our um, lack of focus on young adults, I think, is sort of the, the double whammy here when we think about uh, these populations at risk. There are opportunities as well. So developing approaches to health promotion and chronic disease prevention in youth and young adults can yield considerable benefits. Patterns for how one thinks about health start early, and if one can influence those patterns early, um, one has um, th those yield disproportionately greater benefits. Also, because young adults are um, actually parenting the next generation often, they can have additional beneficial effects on the next generation. Um, as I said before, I believe that this is a critical age period if you're interested in focusing on uh, um, at least racial and ethnic disparities in health, but also socioeconomic disparities in health where you see some of those same uh, patterns as well. And then um, I think that studies in this area have the ability both to generate new knowledge and what I hope to show you at the end, sort of engaging with this particular age group, I think has the ability to empower a, a particular generation to think about uh, uh, real and lasting change in how we think about health. So I'm going to talk about this in the context of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation framework for how they think about health and health disparities so that we can try to put all of the various types of interventions we might want to engage into to uh, prevent disease from happening. Um, I want to use their framework to put this in context. So this is from uh, Paula Braveman's work in the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. Uh, if you are interested in health, these are the factors that try to, that contribute to that. We, of course, we are, no, we are concerned about medical care. We're doctors. Um, medical care is certainly important, um, and that is a factor that is related uh, to the health of an individual. We know that behaviors of the individual are important as well, um, and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. In their framework, it's important to recognize that both medical care and behaviors occur in the context of the living and working conditions in homes and communities. So these don't happen in isolation. They both occur within a set of things that happen within a particular community uh, that uh, relate, that also either directly influence health or influence behaviors in the medical care. And then the living and working conditions in homes and communities happen within the context of economic and social opportunities and resources. Again, these themselves directly influence health and also influence all the layers that follow underneath. And then there's an interaction with genetic and other biological factors that might magnify or, or be protective against these other types of factors that influence health. And together, this framework hopefully helps us to think through where we might want to intervene and how intervening at one particular level, let's say behaviors, is still impacted by these other things that uh, might themselves both, um, both uh, be related to poor health but also influence the types of behavior change that are possible. So if we use this framework and try to think about what we would like to do to intervene on disparities and on cardiovascular disease, let's think about Mr. F and where we could have intervened. So we're going to talk about medical care. So um, and and uh, with Mr. F, I've told you that he, had he likely had hypertension in his 20s. Um, what is it that we could have done differently in the 20s for Mr. F? Here, I'd like to highlight that young people, again, as we said, oftentimes have less access to medical care, so maybe he wouldn't have come in to see us. Um, 
doctors are less likely to treat young people with high blood pressure and that many of these patterns are worse in minority populations. Just in case you are not, don't believe that we are less likely to do this, this is from the Centers for Disease Control. They do these patterns of awareness, treatment, and control of high blood pressure. Um, they've published these patterns, and there have been dramatic improvements over the last 10 years in the awareness and treatment and control of high blood pressure. This graph has often been used to show how older adults are less likely to be treated and controlled um, than middle-aged adults. But to me, the most striking thing has often been that the youngest age group here, 18 to 39, is dramatically less likely to be aware, treated, or controlled if they are being treated. So we, if, even if Mr. F had come into our clinic, we are, likely, we are less likely to treat Mr. F. That's, we have done that type of data in Kaiser, that type of analysis in Kaiser. And then, as we said before, many young adults are not coming in to see us, and so we might not have treated their hypertension anyway. So, um, so that's the sort of uh, medical care. What about behaviors? What types of things in the young adult period are related then to the development of cardiovascular risk? Certainly poor diet, low fruits and vegetables, high processed food, high sodium, high sugar, alcohol and drugs, and then overweight and obesity itself. Those are the types of things that uh, certainly would have been related to the development of cardiovascular risk and disproportionate risk in poor and minority communities. And we're going to talk more about that. And then if we think about sort of the outer levels, the living and working conditions and the economic and social opportunities, the list here is, this is not an exhaustive list, but, uh, but certainly factors like racial discrimination, stress and adversity in childhood, housing insecurity, food insecurity, incarceration, environmental exposures, and poverty itself, each of these is actually related to hypertension risk, right? So in uh, Cardia, one of the earliest studies I did was to look at uh, incarceration. And if you're in your 20s in Cardia, and we ask you the question, have you ever been in a jail or prison? Uh, these are all community-dwelling people, right? So if you've ever been in a jail or prison, that includes jail. That question, the answer to that question itself in both blacks and whites in Cardia and men and in women is predictive of hypertension uh, 20 years later. And so um, the, with all of these, both our work and work of others, all of these themselves are associated with hypertension. That's what you can see most clearly, but also with um, other metabolic parameters. Okay, so I'm going to shift because I'm going to talk about where we have been working to try to intervene at those outer levels to think about policies related to the food environment and how that relates to prevention. I got here, I have to say, I always tell people I never was going to be that doctor that told people like what they should eat or not eat. That was never going to be me. Um, but as I started to think about like what I could be doing, I, I first tried to convince my colleagues that they should be treating high blood pressure in all of their young adults. And they said to me, we don't have a lot of great studies showing that I should be putting that 20-year-old on amlodipine. Or, you know, we don't know enough about the side effects. You've got to convince me of that. And so, and I think that that is true, although the guidelines say that, um, there are challenges. And I, I think clinicians have very right to be wary of that. When I talk to people at Student Health in Berkeley, which I often do, they are concerned about labeling people with uh, giving people at younger ages a diagnosis. And so I think that is a, a, an area that, that we do need to know more about. Um, but it got me interested in trying to understand sort of these larger factors that are really contributing to high blood pressure and that we also have to be intervening on that level, not just figuring out whether we should be giving amlodipine to everyone when they're in their 20s. Before I shift to food, I want to ask if there are any questions. I've thrown a lot at you already. Yes? Um, as the mother of a 22-year-old son graduated from college this year, um, I wonder how I what, how you would respond to this conversation that I had with him. He's on my health insurance um, and will stay there if the Affordable Care Act continues. Yes. Um, so I've encouraged him to go and get a checkup. And, uh, and uh, as part of encouraging him, I said, I am paying for you to have a health insurance so that you can go get a checkup. And he said, could you just give me the money that you're spending? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So this is an educated kid. Absolutely. Yeah. 
I, I think you're exactly right, and I think um, if you look at the patterns for how you know people have uh, taken advantage of opportunities with the Affordable Care Act, many people are making that that choice. And I think this is a very challenging age group to have these types of conversations with. I do think this is a an age group that. Um, that when you can engage with them, um, you actually can have proportionally greater benefits, but, it, but that conversation is a very typical one, and I don't have a good answer for that. Yeah. Um, I'm a family doc, so, so you're gonna know my biases that uh, respectfully, some of our, this dilemma is based on our artificial tending to silo yeah. our specialties, but the, even when I do get those 20-year-olds in, in the office, especially the young men, the challenge, and I'm interested in if you've developed some skills in persuading young people that they're going to have to be on a blood pressure medicine for the rest of their life. And invariably, they ask that question, do you mean I'm going to have to be on this for the rest? It's a really different conversation at 60 than at 20. Absolutely. <laughs> I I don't know that I I told you are both talking about what's exactly the challenge, right? If I wanted to prevent this from happening, the, it, it is a challenge. Both, you know, why do I want to be? And then really, you know, how how would you have those conversations? You're taking in everyone who we treat for hypertension, you take somebody with an asymptomatic condition, say, I'm going to give you this pill that. In the best case scenario, you're going to feel exactly the same. <laughs> and in the worst case scenario, you're going to have side effects from this medication in the hope that somewhere down the road you will have a benefit, right? And having those conversations with 20-year-olds where risk communication is different, um, uh, you know, and the threshold for, for tolerating that is different, I, I don't have the, the answer for that. But I think we have to start having these conversations and we have to start thinking about how we're going to prevent people from having hypertension in this age group. Yeah? Hi, I'm Kathy Shepard. I'm actually a pediatrician who does a lot of adolescent and young adults. Yeah. So you're speaking to me. Yes. Speaking my language. Some of the challenges that we have, though, are really economic and societal in a way that you address them. Yeah. You cannot address them in the, in the office. Yeah. Less RVUs for seeing an adolescent patient than I do a baby. Yeah, so I, so I. 16 who are obese and hypertension, yeah. and I have no resources for them. So, what I'm going to want to argue, and what I will tell you when I go around and I give this talk, and what I think is a change, is that we are, I think our, our default had been look, we do healthcare, we get that there's a whole bunch of stuff happening out there in a society, we can't do that. Um, so, you know, that's really hard. I think there is more interest in, A, defining those larger societal factors that influence health in terms of health. And so my colleagues who do homeless work are doing a lot of work documenting the health consequences of homelessness. My colleagues who do incarceration work are documenting that. And there is a lot of interest among policymakers, among advocates, in using the documentation of health and health consequences of these things as a way to argue for change at, you know, in these other levels. And I would say there's a lot of interest in health systems to try to think about if I actually want to really uh, accomplish the goals I have in a healthcare setting, I have to be willing to try to intervene in these other arenas. Um, we're early in these conversations. That's why I'm saying we're at this intersection. But I think where we used to say, oh, we throw our hands up, we can't do anything, I think now we're saying we have to do something a little bit more. All right, I'm going to talk a little bit about food, um, which is great because I understand you guys have, are so very so forward thinking on, in this area. So I'm going to, this is preaching to the converted, but um, uh, we're going to go there. So um, let's talk about the factors in our food environment that are leading to um, hypertension risk and to risk, it, particularly in poor and minority communities. So let's talk first about salt. You guys know you did your CME today on good fats and bad fats. This is the recommended daily allowance of salt, um, about 2,300 milligrams of sodium. How much sodium are we eating in our diet? How are we doing? Yeah, we're not doing so great. So we eat about 3,700 milligrams of sodium. 
Um, so much more than uh, the, the, the top target is the USDA and the federal target. American Heart Association has had a lower target that's somewhat more controversial. Regardless, we all eat too much salt. And I really mean we all eat too much salt, right? So this is across the age categories, whether you want to take the higher target or the lower target, men and women, everyone's eating way too much salt. <laughs> um, where's the salt in our diet? Processed foods, right? What's the largest source of sodium in our diet? Canned. Huh? Canned? No. Huh? So, no. Process? Yeah. So, the, so, um, eighty percent of the salt in our diet comes from processed prepa or pre-prepared food. Only five percent uh, comes from. Um, uh, home cooking or added while you're eating. So when you at tell patients they need to reduce the salt in their diet to manage their blood pressure, oftentimes what they hear, or might even be what you're telling them, is that uh, they take the salt shaker off, and that is unlikely on average to accomplish that particular goal. Um, the the factor, the item that's most responsible for sodium in the diet is bread, and that's important to mention um, because. That's because we eat a lot of bread, first of all. But it's important to mention because it is not the thing we think about when we are talking about how do we reduce sodium in the diet. Um, the top three lists here, lists here are this is chicken and chicken-related dishes, pizza, pasta, cold cuts, condiments. Um, and it goes down the list. There's basically salt everywhere. Um, in 20-year-olds, so I have a 21-year-old, pizza is the single most important item. And not surprisingly, uh, pizza is, of course, salty bread with salty tomato sauce and salty cheese and salty pepperoni. So, and if you're a, a teenager you eat, or a young adult, you eat a lot of pizza. So why do food manufacturers use so much salt in foods? Huh? It tastes good. Good, good. So usually people, somebody tells me it's preservatives, and certainly in the olden days, um, it used to be preservatives. The reason now is that it's a cheap and inexpensive way to add flavor to food. The interesting thing is, is that we get very habituated to salty foods and that this can be unlearned. And there are really nice um, physiological studies that show that your taste receptors get upregulated and you expect food to taste salty. And if you start slowly decreasing the salt in your food, you can downregulate these taste receptors. And so if you today buy low salt bread, you will hate it. Um, if you actually buy a brand of bread that has slightly lower salt than the current brand that you buy, um, you probably won't notice a difference. And if you do this over time, you will actually downregulate and you will expect food to taste less salty. Um, the Institute of Medicine has done several reports on sodium. Sodium is also related to the weight in food. So they've documented what they call plumping. So people are selling five pounds of chicken or selling a four pound chicken that they plump with salt water because water follows the salt and they're selling you four pounds as a five pound chicken. We did a modeling study to look at the impact if we not even got to the targets but reduced um, uh, three gram per day consumption of salt. This is about half a teaspoon of salt. And we looked at what would happen over time. Please enter the conference number followed by the pen. Oh, no. <laughs> and basically what we, what we showed is that over, um, uh, that if we did this, and we, we, we asked what if, what, what if this, we did this on a population-wide intervention. Not that we ask each individual to lower their salt, but we got food manufacturers to actually reduce sodium in their foods ever so slightly, down to three grams a day, taking a very public health approach to this as opposed to the individual behavior change approach. And what we showed was that um, everyone would benefit. This is reductions in incident cardiovascular disease. That African Americans on the far side of the graph would benefit proportionately more, but everyone would benefit. And that in all categories, younger people, younger adults, in this case younger adults are in their 30s, would have the greatest proportional benefit. And that's because younger adults oftentimes only have high blood pressure as their cardiovascular risk. So intervening has a uh, relative benefit. This week, we think of this as a public health measure, and we wanted to compare it to other public health measures. And we asked if we compare this three gram per day reduction in sodium 
in the food supply to cutting the number of smokers in the U.S. by half. Smoking is, of course, a public health intervention we would all agree with and accept that on average across the population, you would save the same number of people, right? It's the same. Now, this got the, the tobacco people really annoyed with us. Um, but, but the question is, why would this be? Like, how can you imagine this be having the same magnitude? When you stop a smoker from smoking, you have large benefits for that smoker. And you might have additional benefits for the people who live with that smoker who now don't have secondhand smoke exposure. But you don't help anybody else when you do that. So from a public health standpoint, you have large benefits in a small population. When you do a sodium reduction intervention, you have small benefits essentially across the entire population. Some benefit more, hypertensives benefit more, um, African Americans who are salt sensitive benefit more, older people probably benefit more. So everyone benefits, um, but, uh, and that benefit results on average across the population in uh, sort of the same effect. New York City recognized this. They took this on when they were trying to, their Department of trying, Public Health was trying to think of the next thing they could do. They took on sodium, and once their Director of Public Health became the head of the CDC, that's one of the reasons why um, sodium has been a focus for him. Uh, so working directly with the food manufacturers has worked, actually. The UK took this on, and they showed that they reduced sodium consumption in the UK by 10%. Um, the last study that was published, and they did it really probably without people ever noticing. They essentially worked directly with the food manufacturers. They did what I call this, you know, to use a nuclear war analogy, sort of mutual assured destruction. They basically got everyone to agree who makes crackers to lower the sodium in their crackers at exactly the same time. So nobody's crackers tasted worse than anybody else. Everyone did it all exactly the same way. And really, I don't, they did a lot of other things in terms of educating the public and things like that. But I think um, all of this worked without most people making different choices. It just happened because they worked directly there. The UK had much more of a ability to do surveillance and to offer, um, to offer sticks in terms of getting their, uh, the corporations to make these behavior change. But uh, the, in New York City, they have led an effort to do more um, sort of voluntary engagement of the food industry. And actually, if you look over many types of brands, um, their work has, has actually had some effect. Um, many people are concerned that without active surveillance or other types of uh, enforcement measures, this will sort of backtrack over time, but, um, but these types of efforts have been working. One of the things that's been most important, and many of us who've worked to try to document some of this, is that the FDA finally in this last year basically said they, they had salt in a category of generally regarded as safe, meaning there is no amount of sodium that is bad for you. And the FDA within the last year changed this to say, uh, yes, excessive salt is not good for you. And uh, that has allowed public health departments actually to take a more activist role in terms of um, even doing simple things like labeling, which they weren't allowed to do uh, because of the way the FDA was. Of course, for individuals, these are the recommendations I usually make, um, avoiding junk food because high salt without any nutritional content. Reading labels, if you look the variation between salt and ketchup, for example, without buying low sodium ketchup, the variation in sodium content in ketchup is dramatically wide. So I would urge all of you to look at the food labels and think even without going to low sodium where you can read and buy lower sodium for the same products. High salt foods, but in moderation and then increasing fruits and vegetables. The great thing about our studies of hypertension and sodium show that reducing sodium is, um, uh, can lower blood pressure, but actually increasing fruits and vegetables holding sodium content also lowers blood pressure because what's important for blood pressure is the sodium-potassium ratio. And what we do terribly in the US is that we eat high sodium processed foods and then we don't eat our fruits and vegetables and so our sodium potassium ratio is among the worst in terms of thinking about uh, hypertension risk. Let's talk quickly about sugar. Um, so, uh, so uh, you know, I told you uh, hypertension was the thing I focused a lot on, but uh, with Mr. F thinking about early development of diabetes um, is, is actually one of the challenges as well. 
Diabetes um, you know, used to be a disease of older people. It is rapidly increasing in younger people, especially in poor neighborhoods and in communities of color. The pediatricians in the room will know this stat. 10 years ago, one in 11 teens had prediabetes. Now uh, it's uh, about one in four, one in five teens have prediabetes. That's occurring right now. That is the statistic right now. And if you look at the EPI studies, that suggests that about half of these will develop full-blown diabetes within five years. Um, uh, many people have have challenged whether prediabetes, you know, that particular uh, characterization. But I think the most important thing here is regardless of what threshold you use, this shift is a very dramatic one and it has taken place over a short period of time. Um, many of us, um, are, we have on our ballot a sugar uh, uh, um, a soda tax and uh, many are interested in sugary drinks as a way uh, to start to address some of the diabetes that is happening. Why do people focus on sugary drinks? This is an important source of sugar in the diet. It's actually the largest source of added sugar in the diet, approximately 40%. Liquid sugar may be particularly bad for health. And in, for me, what was compelling was that this contributes to diabetes risk even apart from obesity. So even if you um, don't have an impact on, uh, on weight, the impact on diabetes risk is there um, because of the, the links both observationally and experimentally between uh, sugary beverages and diabetes. This is, our this is our patterns of consumption nationally um, in children and adults over time is the, is the rise in uh, sugary beverage consumption. And for those like me who take care of patients who uh, are more resource limited, an important piece of this is uh, looking at, if you look at the average consumer price index over time in the middle black line, carbonated beverages and other sweets are actually their prices held artificially low. Um, many have argued this is because of our, the way we do our, tax, our, um, our commodity subsidies. But the things that we'd like to encourage our patients to eat, like fresh fruits and vegetables, are um, far outstrip the consumer price index. So a rational um, economic actor um, who, you know, are in, our, in our poor patients um, is making this choice when I try to give them advice about what they should do. So there are many approaches to reducing soda consumption. There is a lot of interest in this particular one. Um, and the World Health Organization in the last uh, several weeks just endorsed taxation. And I'm going to talk just a little bit more about that. We uh, did a study um, in 2012 looking at what it would mean uh, to have a soda tax in the US. A soda tax in the US would save us $17 billion in terms of uh, direct health care costs um, uh, that, uh, from events that would be avoided um, by preventing diabetes and cardiovascular disease. And that is larger than the amount that would be generated in, from the taxes. And it's important to, to both understand the magnitude of health benefits, even under very conservative assumptions. And then it's important to understand that these are revenue generating uh, policy tools. And so therefore, in many, in many uh, locales, this is the um, money that is meant to be reinvested in sort of public health types of programs. So the benefits um, would ideally be larger. These are the places that have soda taxes today, Mexico, Philadelphia, and Berkeley. In both Berkeley and Mexico, there has been a drop in uh, soda, con soda purchases as a result of just a 10% tax. Um, so in both of these places, the change in patterns of consumption from a penny per ounce tax, a relatively modest increase, has actually shifted the purchases in the way that, uh, that the economists predict. The, the importance of these um, is also, though, the larger conversation. Interestingly, even in places without the tax, there have been shifts in, in consumption. Soda consumption is actually going down. So many people are pessimistic about the ability of these taxes to have, a, have an effect or that you know, the Beverage Association fights these hard. They actually have had an effect um, because we are talking about this much more. You guys don't sell serve sodas here. 
um, and, uh, and you know, many hospitals done this. The, you can see the American Beverage Association. Um, the bottled water is actually Coca-Cola's leading, um, is the, the product that Coca-Cola makes that's rising most rapidly because we are changing the patterns of how we talk about uh, what's, what's acceptable to eat and drink. I want to talk just briefly about food insecurity, because um, I've talked a lot about uh, families who are living in more resource-constrained environments. Food insecurity is a major uh, problem in, in the U.S. Um, uh, so 90% of households food secure, um, but 10% uh, but with, uh, with low or very low uh, food insecurity. This is work of my colleague, Hilary Seligman. For those who, of us who are inter interested in the cardiometabolic conditions and prevention, understanding food insecurity and its relationship to diabetes is complex. And this is work that she and my colleague Dean Schillinger published in the New England Journal. Um, food insecurity is related then to uh, the affordability of healthy foods. You're unlikely to be eating the most healthy foods. You have episodic food availability. There is stress related to this, and there is documented genetic programming that happens in the context of food insecurity. This leads itself both to diabetes risk and to poor diabetes control, which leads to other things which are the economic consequences here, and then feeds back into worsening uh, competing demands for, for individuals who live in these resource-constrained settings. And so this is a very vicious cycle in many of our patients, which um, which uh, makes all of our efforts to, to try to think about prevention uh, much more challenging. As I mentioned, the things that I would like to encourage my patients to do is to eat fruits and vegetables. That is uh, complicated just from a purely economic standpoint. Um, and uh, the World Health Organization, in addition to endorsing taxes on sugary beverages as an important public health tool, also endorsed uh, subsidies of fruits and vegetables as a means to uh, continue to improve uh, the food environment. We've launched in San Francisco um, a weekly food voucher program. This is uh, done with, in conjunction with the Department of Public Health uh, to try to encourage uh, um, uh, both increased demand um, because we've increased the purchasing power in poor neighborhoods, which then has in turn increased supply of, of fresh fruits and vegetables because vendors now, uh, knowing that more in the community have the ability to purchase fresh fruits and vegetables, are stocking fresh fruits and vegetables. So it's sort of a win-win, and this has been quite a successful uh, endeavor for many years. Um, this is just our program here because we've done some of the partnerships with the farmers markets as well. And then lastly, I know we're at the end of our time, I want to talk with you about um, our work with the bigger picture, uh, yeah, uh, .org. So um, we have been really intrigued with this idea about how do we communicate with young adults around these public health issues and these health issues that we're talking about. So we, we started a partnership with an organization called Youth Speaks, and Youth Speaks is a, um, is a youth empowerment group. They're interested in literacy amongst, among youth and increasing the voices of youth and empowering youth by, through spoken word. And they have never done health, um, but we thought it, this would be a good organization. This is an organization they've been to the White House, Graduates of Youth Speaks, you know, have uh, are actors in Hamilton. This is quite a well-established group that's been quite successful of what they do. Um, they've never done health, and we said to them, "Well, let's let's uh, let's see if we can talk to your audience about health." And as it turns out, because they've mostly targeted poor and minority um, uh, communities, that when we talked about health and the factors that relate to health in their communities, all of the, these youth poets actually had some experience with poor health in their families. And I, that has gotten them to start thinking on their own about how do they use their tools, which is in this case spoken word, to uh, communicate both um, their own experiences, the experiences of uh, their families and their communities, but also the sort of um, outrage, as you'll see with some of them, that have led them to get, become very active uh, politically. Youth Speaks has been, is uh, great because they produce these really fabulous videos, and I'd urge you, if you're interested in um, communication, to go to this particular website, because uh, it's, um, 
there are a lot of extremely well-produced videos that have won a lot of public health communication awards here. And somebody's going to have to help me minimize this because I want to play this last video to, to, to get us out. Okay, good. Perfect. So this is um, just one example of, of a video that, um, that was produced. And we don't tell people what to do. These are youth poets developing their own messages. Oh. How do I? Can I make this? ended. We're standing on the corner between healthy and hard attack. Not sure which way to cross. On one side, an organic grocery, the other, deep fried death. Our bodies pull us away from the produce aisle, it's a value meal heaven. Ignoring the question of just what part of a chicken is a nugget anyway. Every bite of the last meal telling us this is just temporary. But greener, more nutritional options are right across the street. Yet our bodies demand mechanically processed meats. And water costs more than milk, when broccoli costs more than beef. They want a pound of flesh for every 90 pounds of sugar we eat in a year. Our whole block is at this trough, thinking we're full, before meeting back on the corner, starving for the next meal. They turned our bodies into battlefields, turned our cookbooks into combo meals, and told us to drive through. My wallet says the supersizer. We can tell you five different paths to the deep fryer sizzling past midnight. Nobody dares to turn off their neon lights, but their cheap digestible cyanide turns my kiss into snake bites. Take an x-ray of my guts and you'll see the proofs in the pudding. When our diets make parachute pants out of our jeans, our ankles become kangles. Our blood, a stained sewer circulating in our bodies. Only gangrene amputees will be our legacy. Corporate sponsored deadly delicacies. How much longer must we lose the battle before we start the war against diabetes here on the corner of healthy and heart attack, life or stroke? Because we don't want to end up on the corner pricking our thumbs with a lancet to measure our sugar levels every day before we finally decide which way to cross. How far do we have to slip before we end this edible misery and rewrite our recipe? So I, I, so, so this is, you know, not the only way one can communicate. But I think what we've learned is engaging young people in actually the communication themselves. They get more outraged by the many things that are the structural factors that lead to this. And so we've been very encouraged by this collaboration. So thank you. I know we're over time. I'm happy to stay and answer questions. So I know a lot of you will have to go off to clinic and other things, but we're open for entertaining questions. I'll start with one. Yes. <laughs> Advocacy is a huge issue. And um, how, and you're in a wonderful position with the US Task Force, Prevention Task Force, to, to bring science and opinion yeah. to the people who need to hear this, the Congress and other places. How, how has that worked? How is that working? How can we get more of that? Yeah, so I think that, um, so, so we are focused on the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force on clinical preventive services. We have a sister group that is um, at the CDC called the Community Preventive Prevention, Prevent, <laughs> Preventive Services Task Force. Um, they publish a book called The Community Guide. They are looking at evidence base for public health types of interventions. And um, it, they, they're, for some, many people know about them, but many don't. And I think if you are thinking about, like, well, what's the evidence for doing these types of things, they're really an extraordinary resource. And I think they have 
they have um, made uh, their tools much more widely available. And I think the hope is for both public health departments and for, for others to use them for advocacy. And I think when I go around the country, there, there, are, there is a lot more interest in, um, in healthcare settings sort of doing more active partnerships to try to think about this. So for us, with the soda tax, uh, having the hospital council on board with these things has been a, a critical piece of this. Because although this is a policy intervention, I, I think having healthcare still has a weight in these conversations, and I think that's been very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is um, also related to um, potentially your work in preventive services task force, and I'm sorry if it sounds a little provocative. No, um, please. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wondering uh, if when we think about screening, um, and particularly screening for things like cholesterol and diabetes, if we should be ignoring studies, screening studies that were done 30 or 20 or even 10 years ago, given the change mm. in incidence of disease yeah. that, that shift in age. So, you know, yeah. should we be excluding 30-year-olds 30 30 based on, you know, studies from then when the reality now is so different? Yeah, it's a, it's a super good question. And I think we struggled with that a lot with our diabetes recommendation, actually. Um, you know, so so a I think a challenge to just say what a, what a challenge is 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 in medicalizing things that are clearly um, related to health, but um, but we have to as physicians I think question whether giving everyone a diagnosis is actually the issue we want we want to to do. And it was it was very um, important for the task force when we developed our screening recommendation for diabetes. There was actually a lot of discussion about whether we should. Um, and that had to do not with whether it's important, but we didn't want to communicate that this means we're going to put everybody on metformin, that this was about um, screening to sort of accelerate our counseling, our behavioral counseling recommendations. And so I think that is where the, the challenge is. I do agree with you that we are looking at old studies and um, and the the demographics of when things are happening have really shifted and you know part of my challenge with the hypertension studies although you know I think hypertension is a risk and observationally every we know that we don't have studies actually in in that age group um, and so the question is do we throw up our hands and we don't treat hypertension in young adults do we you know what do we do I, I, I think we have enough of an evidence base about hypertension risk but we don't study this age group. Great. Well, All thank right. you so much. Thank you. Sorry to be late. <laughs> Thanks very much.